Welcome to another Growth Masters Federal podcast on growing your business in the federal sector. Your host is Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and prosper in the federal marketplace by developing and executing customized, comprehensive, data-driven business development playbooks. This is one of a series of podcasts on the work and recommendations of the Section 809 panel, which was established by Congress in 2016 as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, with a mandate to review the DOD acquisition regulations and practices, and provide recommendations to Congress for simplifying and streamlining the process. There's an introductory podcast to the series on the Scale to Market website, and if you haven't already done so, we recommend beginning with that brief overview of the panel, its makeup, history, process, and status. As part of the FASA Act of 1994, Congress established the Commercial Items Classification in an effort to streamline the regulatory and management overhead associated with selling common products and services to DOD. The bill was a good start, and many companies have taken advantage of the benefits of the program, but research indicates that many, if not most, small businesses still find the regs and process burdensome and complex. The 809 panel examined this part of the procurement system in detail, and this podcast examines their work, findings, and recommendations. And now, here's your host, Shirley Collier, speaking with Commissioner Larry Trowell, retired Air Force Colonel and GE Executive, whose DOD and private sector expertise and credentials in military procurement led him to focus his 809 panel work on the acquisition of commercial items. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Shirley here. Our discussion topic today is the Section 809 panel's recommendations regarding the federal government's commercial buying with an expert on the subject, Commissioner Larry Trowell. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Shirley. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Larry, federal commercial buying has been a hot topic for a number of years. Before we get into the panel's recommendations, can you give us a bit of background on the topic? Sure. For many years, pretty much everything the federal government bought used the same rules. It didn't really matter if it was a weapon that was being developed or an existing commercial product or service. Everything was procured using essentially the same rules. There were numerous attempts to create unique rules for buying commercial between 1960 and 1990, but none were successful primarily because Congress did not establish any relief from the many government-unique statutes when buying and selling commercial items. Now, in 1994, Congress enacted the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, or FASA. Tell us what that was supposed to do. Well, first and foremost, it established a preference for buying commercial items over items that were uniquely developed for the government. FASA also provided significant relief from many government-unique statutes when buying and selling commercial items. Title VIII of FASA that applies to commercial items was implemented in FAR Part 12 in the DOD FAR Supplement. We've been working with those rules with numerous changes for the past 25 years. Many of our podcast listeners work in businesses that buy and sell in the commercial marketplace every day. Why has buying products and services in the commercial marketplace been such an issue for the federal government to adopt? Well, that's an interesting topic in itself, but we need to remember that when the federal government buys a product or service, it does it wearing two hats. One hat is as the buyer, just as any commercial buyer, and the other acting as the sovereign or the king. 
using its procurement dollars to implement and support public policy, something ordinary buyers don't really need to do. Meaning it has a social agenda in addition to wanting to buy the best products at the best price, right? Yeah, that's right. Federal government contracts will typically include both commercial-like terms, such as those related to inspection, acceptance, title transfer, risk of loss, and so forth. And it'll also include terms unique to the government's sovereign role, such as important public policies as set-asides to foster small business, equal opportunities for veterans, combating trafficking in persons, and perhaps some less significant policies, such as the one of the panel's favorites, the requirement to accept dollar coins and vending machines in federal facilities. <laughs> the intent of FAFSA was to provide relief from these government-unique requirements, but only when the federal government was buying commercial items. So it seems then that the definition of that term, commercial item, is crucial to understand. Yes, that's right. If the government's going to step away from its important role as the sovereign, using its purchasing power to implement public policies, then the rules need to be clear about when that can be done. So, Larry, what is the definition of a commercial item, and did the Section 809 panel propose any changes to it? Well, the complete definition of commercial item is contained in FAR Part 2 on definitions. So, in the interest of time, I won't go into all the details of the definition, and there's a lot of details, but I will point out some of the key elements of the definition of a commercial item. First, a commercial item is any item that is of a type used by the general public and has been sold, leased, or licensed, or offered for sale, lease, or license to the general public. The term commercial item also includes commercial items that may require minor modifications to satisfy the government's unique requirements. And yes, as you might expect, there is a definition of what qualifies as a minor modification. One aspect of the commercial item definition that has been confusing is the term itself, commercial item. It means either a product or a service. The panel heard from many in and out of the government that this was confusing, so the panel recommended that the definition of commercial item be divided into two separate definitions, one for commercial product and the other for commercial service. Congress has already adopted this recommendation in the 2019 Defense Authorization Act, and the changes to the FAR and the DOD FAR supplement should be published later this year. So this is one of the panel's recommendations that will be implemented relatively quickly. Yes, that's right. That should be out this year. Larry, can you give us an example of a commercial item or commercial service? Sure. Um, The full definition, as I said, is complex and there are many nuances, but let's look at a few of the most common examples. And let's start with the easiest and narrowest example, something the government refers to as off-the-shelf products. An off-the-shelf product is one that is sold in substantial quantities to the general public without modification and at a catalog or market price. So pretty much anything you'd buy at Best Buy or Walmart or anything like that fits the definition of an off-the-shelf product. The government is buying exactly what you or I might buy. In contrast to the -the off-the-shelf products, a commercial product can also be a product that does not need to be sold in substantial quantities. In fact, doesn't even need to have been sold at all, just offered for sales to the general public. A simple example of this might be a cable modem. Let's say a company currently has a modem it sells in the commercial market, but it's just coming out with a new, more powerful cable modem. The government can buy the new modem as a commercial item, even if it has not yet been sold or only sold in small quantities. This flexibility in the definition is intended to allow the government to buy new technologies without having to wait for the product to be sold in substantial quantities. What about products or services sold in the commercial marketplace that need minor modifications to satisfy the government's unique requirements? 
been somewhat of a controversial piece of it, but an important piece. A commercial product does not stop being a commercial product just because the government needs a unique minor modification to the item. For example, the government may want to buy a piece of commercially available electronics, but needs it to be in a hardened case rather than a plastic case. As long as adding the hardened case does not change the product's essential physical characteristics, it probably can still be procured as a commercial product. I will point out that it's up to the contracting officer to decide if the modification is minor or not. Hmm. So what about commercial services? Well, commercial services are a little bit different. First, services are commercial if they offer the installation, maintenance, repair, or training associated with a commercial product. So maintenance or repair of a commercial refrigeration unit in a government lab might be a good example. Even though the refrigeration unit is used in the government building for a government purpose, if it's a commercial product, then the maintenance or repair of that unit is likely a commercial service. Service can also be commercial if the service is what's referred to as of a type offered and sold competitively in substantial quantities at catalog or market price for a specific task. A good example of that I like to use is one that was actually decided by the Government Accountability Office a number of years ago regarding the shipment of military family household goods. The DOD has some unique requirements for packing and shipping household goods, But in this particular case, the GAO decided that those unique requirements were minor and that the packing and shipping services the government was buying was still of a type offered in the commercial market. As I said, the definition can be complex, and there is often much discussion between an offeror and the contracting officer over whether or not a product or service meets the definition of a commercial product or a commercial service. Establishing a fair and reasonable price for a product that's not yet been sold in the commercial marketplace but has a government unique modification, also presents some difficulties. Companies should expect to be asked to substantiate the basis of their prices. But there are benefits to the contractor if they can get their products and services defined as commercial, which is why they would go through this exercise. Yeah, certainly. Um, When Congress established the commercial buying statutes, it intended the government's policies and practices for buying commercial products and services more closely resemble those customarily used in the commercial marketplace. Let me mention a few examples of how procurement policies were modified to accommodate buying commercial. As we discussed earlier, the government has many unique terms and conditions that serve to implement public policy and are not necessarily typical of terms customarily seen in the commercial marketplace. Congress set up a criteria for limiting those unique clauses, and while that criteria hasn't really worked as well as we'd like, it has reduced the number of unique clauses. By the way, this reduction in government unique terms and conditions applies for businesses whether you're a prime contractor directly with the government or you're a subcontractor at any tier. Another benefit is with regard to pricing. Many of your listeners may be familiar with the Truth and Negotiations Act, which requires offerors to provide detailed cost-based pricing data to support a price negotiations. This approach makes some sense when the government is buying something that no one else has ever bought before, but makes less sense commercial products and services, so Congress exempted them from TINA. The thought is that if products or services compete in the commercial marketplace, then market forces should be sufficient to ensure the government is getting a fair and reasonable price. Contract financing is another benefit of the commercial buying rules. Where customary commercial market practice includes buyer financing, then the contracting officer may offer that buyer financing with certain limitations. Another area where the government can offer more commercial market-like terms is with regard to technical data and computer software. For commercial products and services, 
the government is limited to acquiring only the technical data and rights in that data customarily provided to the public with the commercial product. The same is true for computer software. The government may only acquire the licenses customarily provided to the public, again with some limitations. This ought to be good news for companies that are in the business of developing and selling high-tech products in the commercial marketplace. One of the most significant changes in policy was regarding quality assurance. Contracts for commercial products must rely on the contractor's existing quality assurance systems, including the contractor's in-process inspections, as a substitute for government inspection and acceptance, unless the contractor's commercial practice is to allow customer in-process inspections. Finally, depending on the product or service being acquired, other customary commercial practices may be appropriate for the acquisition. This is where market research and early engagement with the buying activity comes into play. It's generally up to the potential offeror to make the case that these other commercial practices are truly customary in the marketplace and should be included in a contract with the government for commercial products or services. These are excellent, Larry, and I can see where there would be substantial benefits to small businesses. We need to take a break. My guest is Larry Trowell, a retired Air Force Colonel with a long career in contracting and a commissioner on the Section 809 panel. When we come back, we'll be talking about other changes that will simplify how the Department of Defense buys commercial products and services. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Today's discussion of the Section 809 panel's work on the DOD's procurement of commercial items is brought to you by Scale to Market, and your host is Shirley Collier. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to achieve profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to obtain your copy of the Davey Growth Framework. Growthmasters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The mission is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective growth strategies in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. Our podcast continues now with Shirley's interview of 809 Panel Commissioner Larry Trowell on the panel's work and recommendations on changes in how the DOD procures commercial items. Welcome back. So the panel's recommendation to simplify the definition of commercial items makes sense. What are the changes has the panel recommended that will simplify the government's buying of commercial products and services? Okay, well, there are a number of other recommendations the panel believes will simplify buying commercial products and services. In conducting its research, the panel identified, for example, 27 separate clauses and provisions in the FAR and the DOD FAR supplement that used the term subcontract. But each clause had either a unique definition of its own or it had no definition at all. The panel recommended a single definition for subcontract that would apply equally across the FAR and the DOD FAR sub. And what is that definition? The recommendation is that a subcontract be defined as any contract entered into by a prime or a subcontractor for the purpose of obtaining supplies, materials, equipment, or services of any kind under a prime contract. As part of the definition of subcontract, the panel also recommended language that would exclude from the definition of a subcontract agreements entered into for the supply of commodities, commercial products, or commercial services that are intended for use in the performance of multiple contracts. The panel believes this will significantly simplify the flowdown of government unique terms 
where a contractor or subcontractor's single supply chain supports both its government and its purely commercial work. That will be very beneficial to small businesses who have a lot of subcontracts. So can you tell us more about how the panel dealt with the many government unique terms and conditions that we're discussing? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, the panel also noted that today there are 165 government unique clauses that are applicable to commercial products and services. Now, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, not every clause may apply to every contract, but that's still an enormous number, especially when compared to the 57 clauses that were potentially applicable to buying commercial items when FASA was first implemented in 1995. Just as an aside, as burdensome as 165 sounds, that's an improvement over the more than 400 clauses that are potentially applicable to a typical contract for non-commercial products and services. And that's one of the biggest complaints that my small business clients have. They think they have to hire an attorney for even the smallest of government contracts. So what is the panel recommending regarding eliminating some of these clauses? Well, the panel researched each of these 165 clauses, and it was a big job, I can tell you. And we identified 122 statutes, 20 executive orders, and 23 regulations that are the basis for the provisions and clauses. The panel made a number of detailed recommendations for Congress to adopt that would significantly reduce that number back to where it was in 1995 and significantly tighten the controls to prevent the number of government-unique clauses applicable to commercial buying from creeping back up again. I like that. It seems like government contract clauses are like (laughs) whack-a-mole. They never go away. (laughs) So, Larry, how is the SAP or simplified acquisition process or procedures coming into play? Well, the simplified procedures in Part 13 are applicable to buying either commercial or non-commercial products or services up to the simplified acquisition threshold, which is currently $250,000. In 1996, Congress created a test program that allowed contracting offices to use those simplified procedures to buy commercial items up to a threshold of $5.5 million, and now it's up to $7 million. Wow, these are significant thresholds, especially for small businesses. Yeah, that was a significant simplification that gave the contracting officer great flexibility in virtually all aspects of the procurement, from the publication of the procurement notices to the documentation required in the contract file. The panel's research determined that based on FY17 data, the $7 million threshold would include over 90% of all commercial buys. And simplified procedures are designed to speed up the process, and that's something we heard from many businesses, especially small businesses. The procurement process takes too long, they said, and they also said, let me know if I won or I lost, but do it quickly. In spite of these advantages, the panel was unable to establish how often contracting offices took advantage of this test program. Anecdotal data seemed to indicate that it was not being widely used. Now, my experience supports that. I coach my clients on how to use the SAP, especially to get their foot in the door in agencies where they are not known. I would say that most of the contracting officials that we have approached are unaware of or have no practical experience using these procedures. Therefore, they tend to be reluctant to use them. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. So the panel proposed to remedy this underutilization by cleaning up the instructions, placing them in the location of the FAR where they are more likely to be seen and read, by listing in one place all the simplified procedures that are applicable to the contracting officer, which they were not in the past. Hmm. This includes, for example, reminding the contracting officers that simplified procedures are exempt from the requirement for full and open competition. So contracting officers may solicit from a reasonable number of sources to promote competition from the maximum extent possible. 
panel also recommended that Congress amend two statutes to allow certain existing exemptions related to electronic publication of solicitations and awards to apply up to the $7 million threshold. The panel made a number of other recommendations, including discouraging the contracting officer from requesting detailed technical and management volumes when acquiring commercial products and services, as well as discouraging the use of detailed source selection subfactors that unnecessarily slow down and complicate the selection of sources for commercial products and services. That's great. Reminding the contracting officer that for simplified acquisition, the use of formal past performance database is not required. Another procedure that unnecessarily slows down what certainly should be a relatively simple acquisition of a commercial product or service. Finally, to ensure we overcome this underutilization problem that we discussed earlier, the panel included a recommendation that the contracting officer be required to use these simplified procedures unless they were procuring a commercial product or service that was unusually complex, and then they obtained the approval of a higher level to use the more complex procedures in Part 15. The panel's not saying that the more complex procedures are never appropriate, but we are saying that the simplified procedures should always be the default. I like that. Well, and I think you're right about the impact of simplified commercial buying on small businesses. The panel noted that, based on the 2017 data, over 39% of DOD's commercial buys were from small business. And those of us in the small business community would like to see that increase. (laughs) Larry, I frequently give talks on the misunderstanding that both contractors and government personnel on what the FAR allows and even encourages regarding pre-solicitation communications. Did the panel address this? Yes, we did. Uh, The panel heard from a number of individuals and companies that there seems to be like a cultural taboo when it comes to the government talking with industry. The reason for the reluctance is really unclear, but anecdotal evidence points to concerns by contracting officers that such exchanges were either inappropriate or could lead to protests. The OFPP has made several attempts through its myth-busting memos over the last eight years or so to encourage government workers to engage in ethical legal exchanges with industry, But that hasn't seemed to move the needle on this matter. What is the panel recommending in terms of educating, allowing, and incentivizing government personnel to interact more with vendors, especially small businesses, to seek out more innovation? Well, first, the panel recommended changes to the FAR that would make it clear that discussions between the government industry before release of a solicitation are not only allowed but encouraged and necessary. In fact, the recommended changes to the FAR draw heavily from those OFPP Mythbuster memos that you mentioned. The panel believes that if the government is to be a knowledgeable buyer in the commercial marketplace, ongoing market research and discussions with those in the marketplace is essential. Did you also hear from small businesses about the difficulty of identifying the right office or person to talk to regarding upcoming opportunities or just to approach regarding new products or services that perhaps the government is not currently buying? Yes, we did. And as we've all probably experienced, sometimes piercing the bureaucracy can be difficult, especially if you're unfamiliar with how the government or a particular government activity operates. The panel addressed this concern by recommending that procuring activities establish a market liaison position that would serve as the activity's point of entry for new or existing suppliers with new ideas, technologies, products, or services. The panel recommends the market liaison be an individual with sufficient experience, knowledge, and insight into the operation of the procuring activity to meaningfully assist those businesses making an inquiry. That's an excellent first step. 
if that person is empowered to make connections for vendors with government decision makers, you know, that's the complaint that many people have with the SADBU offices. Rarely do they make the introductions or connections to program or contracting personnel who make acquisition decisions. Yes, that's why we recommended the market liaison position with the specific responsibility of serving as the entry point for the procuring activity and specified that that individual must have sufficient knowledge and expertise at the activity to know where to make the connections. If we want new competitors with new ideas and technologies, the panel believes we need to facilitate their entry into the system. Absolutely. Another of the panel's recommendations addressed what the panel refers to as buying readily available products and services. How does this fit with commercial buying? Well, we think of these two recommendations as evolutionary and revolutionary. The commercial buying recommendations are designed to take our experience over the past 25 years since FASA and tweak certain elements of the rules to make them work better and further simplify commercial buying. These commercial-related recommendations are, in our opinion, evolutionary. Buying readily available and readily available with customization, which is another recommendation of the panel, would eliminate the commercial-non-commercial distinction and instead provide broad authority for the government to buy products and services as long as they are readily available in the marketplace and not even necessarily in the commercial marketplace. This is clearly more revolutionary and and obviously a very controversial change. Yes, I would say so as well. Um, But what do you think are the chances of these recommendations being accepted? The recommendations include a mix of new statutes, changes to existing statutes, and changes to the FAR and DOD FAR supplement. One of the things the panel did is not only make the recommendations, but they also provided the recommended changes to the statutes or the regulations. That's why the report runs 2,000 pages. Much of that is the line-in-line-out changes to the regulations and the statute. Congress has already addressed the recommendations to split the commercial item definition into commercial products and commercial services. And Congress is working on the 2020 Defense Authorization Act right now, and I'm hopeful that many of these recommendations will be addressed in that document. Some recommendations, such as the improvements to market research and the establishment of market liaisons, are something that we think the Department of Defense could do today without any congressional action. Excellent. So, Larry, as we close, what recommendations do you have for small businesses so they can begin preparing now for these impending changes? Well, with regard to the changes we talked about here, I think there's three points that are essential to success. First, you need to engage with potential government customers early and be willing to help them do their market research. You recall our discussion earlier about the hesitance government procurement personnel have about talking with industry. You need to help them by knowing the rules yourself about market research, when it is appropriate, what is allowed, and what is not. If you have a commercial product that may be of interest to the government, it's also essential that you engage early in the process to ensure the requiring activity and the contracting officer know there are products or services in the commercial market that they should consider. Keep in mind that even though the FAR requires market research and we'll do as much as we can to incentivize that, it's not unusual for a requiring activity to be pressed for time and not do sufficient market research to know your product or service might satisfy their needs. And many of you probably know, once a solicitation is issued, asking for non-commercial products or services is often very difficult to get that decision turned around, so you need to get involved early. Yeah. And finally, if you're offering a commercial product or service, help the contracting officer by building and presenting a strong, credible story 
that describes why your offering satisfies the definition of a commercial product or commercial service and why the price is fair and reasonable. Expect to be asked to substantiate your prices using commercial sales or sales of like commercial products or services. Larry, your extensive knowledge and experience in federal procurement processes, past, present, and future, are impressive and very valuable to our listeners. Thank you for sharing it with us all today. Thank you, Shirley. It's been my pleasure. Folks, if you would like to know more about today's topic, please reach out to me via email, our website, or LinkedIn. And look for additional podcasts on the Section 809 panel's recommendations. This is Shirley Collier, host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. Thank you for joining us today. Whether large or small, if you're a DOD contractor, the 809 panel's work will affect your business. It's critical that you stay informed about this initiative and get involved in driving the outcomes. To find additional 809 panel interviews, along with information on how to contact relevant government and non-government organizations involved with the panel's work, visit our website at scaledtomarket.com, that's scaled2market.com, and click on the Section 809 panel link. For more information on how to grow your business in the federal marketplace, subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal Channel wherever you get your podcasts, and join us again soon for another informative Growth Masters Federal presentation.